Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, a subject close to my heart on this week's Londonist Out Loud the history of the printed word. Have we found the last remaining printing press on Fleet Street? And from a modern perspective, when all it takes to achieve printed text is control and P, can we really understand the filth, the fearlessness and the technical acumen required to put ink on paper? It's the 6th of June, 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. This is Londonist Out Loud. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone through from your front. Just off Fleet Street and above me towers the steeple of St Bride's Church, which you'll recognise, of course, because it looks a lot like a wedding cake. It's a light-coloured stone and it's catching the sunlight against a beautiful blue background of the sky and below it here with me is Glyn Farrow. Now you're the chief executive of the organisation known precisely as what? St Bride Foundation. And this is distinct from the church in in what ways? It is indeed. Uh, In the 1880s, there was a review of all the city funds held by the parishes, and 119 of the parishes, all the funds were held together, grouped together in what became the City Parochial Foundation, which is now known as Trust for London. As part of that process... Five uh, parishes opted out of the scheme and St Bride's was one of them. At the same time, it was felt there was a need for a, a place to look after people in the printing and associated trades. So St Bride Foundation was given an endowment fund and was set up to do just that. And while it's not actually associated with the church, we do have some representation from the church on our governing body. Okay, we should get some basic building blocks in place. For anybody in the UK, I suspect Fleet Street, which is still used as a term for the printed press, will have that resonance. But outside the UK, that might not be obvious. This is where newspapers were made, where journalists hung out for many a long year. This is the centre of journalism and was always the home of the British press. Um, But actually, the area goes back way, way before that. Uh, Winkin de Word, who was a a student of Caxton, who practised in Westminster set up his office, his printing works just over the road in Fleet Street where there is now a Japanese takeaway so the whole area is synonymous with printing, journalism and all those associated trades such as bookbinding 
the Worshipful Company of Stationers and Newspaper Makers is just up the road, uh, and they represent all those industries. Do you know what? While you've been talking, something's just finally clicked into place in my mind. For years I've known, of course, that Fleet Street is about journalism, and for years I've known that St Paul's uh, used to be where all the books were sold. And I've, I've only just realised, having walked down from St Paul's Station to be here today, that, uh, of course, that makes perfect sense. Well, if St Paul's was still very much a prominent area until 120 years ago, um, part of our library was given by John Passmore Edwards, who was a West Country philanthropist, and he had his printing uh, practice up at St Paul's. Um, Um, He actually went bankrupt at one time in his life. By working hard, he brought himself back to prosperity and endowed not only our library, but numerous Passmore Edwards libraries, reading rooms, cottage hospitals all over the country. Well, as I said, we're around the the back of... I mean, you can hear from the lack of traffic noise, comparatively speaking, that we're not next to Fleet Street, but we're tucked away in a a little courtyard nestling behind the church itself. And the St Bride's uh, Foundation Institute, the building itself, is a very peculiar-looking thing indeed. It's red brick with a a sort of grey brick garnishing, very tall chimneys that are sort of getting on for Tudor style, but not quite so fragile-looking. What can we say about the architecture of this building? The building was designed designed by a man called Cunningham Murray um, and it was designed in 1891. The foundation was actually incorporated by Royal Charter on the 23rd of February 1891 by Queen Victoria um, and because the building was designed to look after people in the printing and associated trades it had to be a multi-purpose building and we'll come to everything that goes on in the building as we go around but it was designed to fit in a very curious space. The facade we're looking at now which is actually the western elevation of the building you can see um, sort of double the width you would have been able to at one time because the point we are standing in is would have been St Bride's Passage on either side of the passage would have been Bell's Buildings which was a, a really not very pleasant tenement block the whole area is steeped in history because it's a quite a dark area this is also the site of the Bridewell Prison um, a house of correction a workhouse uh, Charles Dickens drank in a pub just over the road we're not very far from the old Cheshire Cheese so there's a lot of Dickensian atmosphere and historical events happened round here if we look over to the left to the churchyard you can actually see the grave of Samuel Richardson Samuel Richardson wrote Clarissa and Pamela he lived in Salisbury Square which is just across the way and he was a master of the stationers company um, he's buried in the churchyard uh, and his gravestone is upright and the legend goes that it's upright to stop the prostitutes of the time plying their trade on it whether that's true or not I don't know but it's a good story well it was all, all about his moral virtue wasn't it absolutely A lot of the figures and the ideas that you've mentioned there seem to speak to sort of populist concern. I mean, Pamela, for example, was a sensation of its time. Dickens, very much a popular writer. And some of the lower-brow pursuits that you've mentioned as well. Is that a fair sort of representation of the area? Was it concerned with populist stuff rather than uh, highbrow concerns? This part of Fleet Street is very much the epicentre of journalism. And not just populist journalism, highbrow and intellectual journalism behind this is the Reuters building, which is a rather stunning design. And all the newspapers going from the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, the Times, they were all in the area and always have been. It's only in the 80s when they moved away to Wapping. So this was actually the centre from a complete range of views and opinions. And if you walk along Fleet Street today, you can still see where all the old big papers were. Uh, and we go from the Times right through uh, to the rest of the News International Corporation. <laughs> 
Now, of course, we, we know that the move over to Wapping was a large part because of the print unions, wasn't it? And as I arrived here this morning, the first thing I saw in a case were bits of printing matter and the blocks and the letters and so forth. Because that actually is the whole reason for the foundation. As you say, journalism and printing left Fleet Street in the middle of the 80s. And you also talked about the unions, which uh, in the industry were known as chapels. Uh, and the leader of that particular chapel would look after his part of the business. And we actually have a, an ex-father of the chapel working for us now. And he's a Fleet Street trained and apprentice compositor. And he's actually teaching the traditional methods that they used up until the 1980s today. Well, this is the big news for me today, then, that print and printing is still alive and well on Fleet Street. And, well, we should head in, uh, not least because we're getting a little bit of wind up, which is our favourite thing on this show, but we're going to head into the St Bride Institute now and see uh, what's on offer. OK. Before we go in, you did mention the building. It's actually an Anglo-Dutch design, and I mentioned that it was built to fit in a curious space. Well, we have five floors, three mezzanines, 16 staircases, 41 rooms, and a swimming pool in the cellar. <laughs> All in a place that, from uh, this position, looks about as big as a shoebox. Absolutely, it's huge. You have, you're only seeing a fraction of it. It goes up, it goes down, it goes back, it beyond, it goes under. It's a great, big, rambling, wonderful building. Well, let's let's wander in, show. And uh, as we head in, I mean, I hope this is okay, but the listener will pick up on a, a clacking sound oh, um, uh, as we go along. I feel, if, if it's okay with you, it'd be quite interesting to say, because we, we were hoping to record this episode uh, sort of six months ago, and what happened to you? Oh, I fell off my motorbike and got run over by a lorry, so uh, I've got a rather badly broken leg, but I'm doing very well, thank you very much. Yes, it's quite amazing. A juggernaut went over both legs and you've got five brakes in one leg and uh, a horrendous injury, and, and you're up and walking. Yeah, well, I'm very lucky, and it's all thanks to the care of the, the NHS, which did a fantastic job for me, and I'm extremely grateful. Right, we've come into the main part of the building, past the big hall, which is known as the Bridewell Hall, which, um, fortunately for the foundation, is fully occupied today because we let these rooms out to generate income for the foundation. We're going into the private part of the building, which is where they used to teach lithography. Nowadays, the room has been divided into two, and that, although it was once covered with white glazed brick, it's now been clad. But you can see as we come into the main office, um, it's a huge space, and we've still got various printing artefacts going back several hundred years. Yes, I met one or two of them as we came in. <laughs> um, by my desk, there's an Albion press. We have a huge wooden bookbinding press, uh, which comes from Windsor Castle. And just in front of us, you will see a, a massive wooden case with about 16 drawers, which all contain lead type. Shall I open one and show you? Oh, yes, please. You will see that in this case there are many, many thousands of pieces of lead type. And they're not what I was expecting. They look more or less like uh, little razor blades or something, tiny little things. They are tiny little things, but you, as we go around the building you'll see how they were made uh, and why they were made like this and the fact that they're type high. It's also quite interesting to note that the case we're looking at now weighs many tonnes um, and the whole of this building was designed to take very, very heavy printing equipment and presses. So we're very fortunate in the fact that we can pretty well move things around anywhere uh, and, and not run risks with the building. Well, yes, because the first two items that you mentioned as we came in really deserve a, a bit of description. They're not uh, printing equipment as you or I might have them in the home. These, are, these look more like uh, methods of torture to me. 
Well, it's funny you should say that because there is a huge resurgence in what is known as letterpress printing and there are a lot of keen, enthusiastic amateurs who have presses just such as this in their own homes. That one's at Albion, which was sort of the workhorse of the British press for many, many years. And in fact, one of our members of staff was using something very similar up until the 80s when Fleet Street moved away to Wapping. Um, it weighs an awful lot and you can see it's a traditional mechanism that you pull the lever, the platen goes down and makes the impression. And this looks like a, a slow process. Very slow process and when we get downstairs you'll see an example of, of, of type being set, four pages and if you look at it you'll realise why it took months and months and months and it also leads us to think about how incredibly uh, efficient uh, and clever and skilled compositors were in Fleet Street, how they managed to produce these papers and get them out and do the same thing the next day very, very skilled job. I wonder if we shouldn't separate our terms a little bit. You've used a few that perhaps I wouldn't feel confident using uh, lithography and and compositors. Lithography, but um, a compositor was the person who took the individual pieces of type and set them so that they, when printed, would read as text. Uh, and a very skilled job. And when you took the type out of the frame that you'd set, that was called dissing it. So that was putting it back into the case. And as we go around the building, you'll see some cases of type and you'll understand why that was, was difficult. It's also where we get the expression upper and lower case because the, the, one of the cases is upright and one is at an angle downwards so that you can put the upper case, the capitals in the top, and the lower case in the bottom. So that's where the expression comes from. If you look at type as well, it's very difficult to tell the difference between a P and a Q so that's how we get mind your P's and Q's Um, we're now going into the reading room of the library the library was set up in the 1890s to be a major technical resource for those people learning about printing and typography and graphic design and today I'm pleased to say that we're still probably one of the world's great resources the library is open to the public and you can also make an appointment and come and see uh, research staff on a one-to-one basis. Where we are now, there are about 2,000 items on open access, so you can just come in and take things off the shelf and sit in the reading room and look at them. But if we go behind the desk, we'll go into the items that are on closed access uh, and that's when it starts to get interesting. Behind me now you can see eight or nine rolling stacks of books, which looks like an impressive collection, but on the top floor we have another three and a half kilometres of shelving. Oh, my word. (laughs) Yeah, true. It is, oh, my word. Um, You said that the building looked very small. It's it's huge. Um, It's a fascinating building. The top floor, all the roofs were pitch glass so that students could see by natural daylight um, people setting type and learning all about the printing industry. We think that the glass went in the war. Um, This building actually survived pretty unscathed, but uh, as we get to the top of the building, I'll show you some examples of the damage we did. Sustain. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's quite remarkable, really, because the area all around St Paul's was was famously raised, really, wasn't it, in in the incendiary attacks of the Blitz? Yeah, the 29th and the 30th of December 1940. Um, When I started at the foundation five years ago, we started looking for the old minute books, and we found all the handwritten minute books. And it's a fascinating snapshot of social history, and it's also a fascinating snapshot of what happened through the war and what happened to this building, who was in it, what happened each day, the damage sustained, the fact that the swimming pool had to be kept full of water, and the fact that we took in other businesses locally 
whose buildings and premises had been bombed and we looked after them and housed them. So it's all part of our public benefit. Any personal stories that resonated with you as you were going through those materials? I I think the one of... uh, primary interest is we used to have a librarian here called Mr Turner Berry um, and there's a flat for the librarian in the middle of the building and he lived here throughout the Blitz and used to go onto the roof as people did at St Paul's with buckets of water and sand and throw the incendiaries off Um, so the building was relatively unscathed. And we head behind the counter now. This feels transgressive in fact. This is one of the few places where I know I'm not supposed to be behind a library counter. If you look at the end of the stacks, you'll see uh, headings of all the subjects we cover. And these ones in this room are the most popular things with our readers. Um, And we go from book plates, modern writing and calligraphy, typeface styles, graphic design, posters, street literature... Oh, everything to do with the printed word, really. Well, no, actually, I, I want to pick out one or two here that you didn't mention because these open up different avenues into my idea of what printing could be. Um, we've got uh, signs and symbols, numerical math and scientific notation, musical notation and printing. These must be very different to species requiring very different uh, approaches. Well, it's all putting an impression of a, of a figure onto paper. So whether it's music or text or speech or whatever, it's the same sort of process that does it. We actually have quite a significant collection of printed music, uh, and in our collection of typewriters, um, we have a, a music typewriter. We also have a Braille typewriter or a Braille impression machine. But presumably, if you're thinking about a printed page of text, the requirement for it to be positioned exactly correctly in terms of the top and bottom of the page is less important than if you know half a line is everything in a, a piece. Of music it is all incredibly important and when we get down into the printing workshop you will see um, that we also have some cases of shavian type which is the language that george bernard shaw invented and when i show you those you will see how critical it was for the compositor to get his job done accurately well we head down uh, past these now a couple of resonances with previous shows are leaping out at me the london center for book arts over towards fish island of course some of the hand printing machinery that we've just looked at we've certainly seen similar machines over there and then we've got the rolling library shelves here well of course the poetry library on the south bank is where people like to get trapped in amongst these shelves We're heading up the uh, stairs now into what looks like a a meaty reference section. We're actually going into what is the Minstrels Gallery across the big hall. Uh, It was bricked up in the 1980s to provide extra storage space. Now it's just full of some of the periodicals that we have been receiving since the 1890s. It's one of my ambitions to reopen the gallery within the next year and uh, as part of the improving uh, fire regulations, it would be a good idea for us to do so. So I'm using that to my advantage and spurring me on to get the job done. Now, what's already becoming apparent to me as we move through the building, you, you mentioned how many mezzanines there are, and that seems to require a great deal of stair climbing. Uh, there is an incredible amount of stair climbing. As I said, there are 16 staircases. But I should also say that's 16 that we've really identified. We don't count the odd step here, the odd two steps there. So when you start to add those into the equation, you get a very complicated design. 
we have the original plans for the building which are hand painted on canvas and it even looks slightly crazy when you look at it before it was even built uh, the building's been changed comparatively little over the years uh, and it's also one of my jobs to try and get it restored and put back to as close as the original as possible uh, it's a very exciting project how long have you been involved with this place? I've been here for five years. It's been a, a roller coaster. Um, when I started, I don't think I really knew what I'd bitten off. And if I had known, uh, I'd still have done it anyway. But it's been absolutely amazing. It's a wonderful place to work. And what did you come from? Uh, I came from Youth and Family Justice, so a completely different... Well, yes, well, how did that happen? <laughs> just a completely different career change. It just happened to suit me. This job occurred at the right time, came along, and uh, as soon as I came here and had the interview and had a look around the building, uh, I was hooked. Uh, I think it was actually the building rather than what went on in it that really got me interested and then as time has passed I've become more and more interested in the library and I've understood more the significance and importance of the library and the whole foundation I've also started to become interested in printing and some of the sort of more avant-garde aspects of of book creation and book design Um, you can hear a whole group of our guests for the day who have obviously rented a room in the middle of a meeting so I suggest we walk quietly past there and then I'll tell you what the, the room is there lots of wood panelling and marble flooring going on here and the room we're going past is the Passmore Edwards reading room which was the original reading room when the foundation was built and opened in 1894 to the back of the room there is another chamber with steel doors which is the William Blades Library Blades was a printer who died in 1890. It was the time of the creation of the foundation and we were able to incorporate the design for a room the same size and shape as his library at his home in Sutton in Surrey into the design for this building. Uh, And in that room we have some of our most treasured possessions which we've got out today so that I can show you later. You can see bits of steeple every now and again as we look out of the windows. I was talking with somebody about St Brides and, and the name Brides and the wedding cake connection of the steeple. What about the word bride itself? Which precedes which? Uh, Well, it's actually from St Bridget. That's where the name comes from. That's how the church got its name. Um, I think there are six places of worship all stacked one on top of each other uh, at the church next door. Uh, It's my belief that it's only after the dramatic bombing in the Blitz and the subsequent repair work and renovation that took place in the 50s that they actually discovered the extent of the places of worship on top of each other in the church. They go back to Roman times. Uh, In Roman times, this part of the city wasn't in the city uh, and the Romans buried their dead outside the city walls. Oh, right, yes, we're on the other side of the ditch, aren't we? We are indeed. So um, this was a Roman burial ground. Now, of course, we like to say that we are in the city and we very much are. But, of course, the Fleet River has now been covered over uh, and it's all part of the same place. So we're we're very proud to be a, a city institution. Um, as we go up this crazy staircase, I'm just going to open a window so you can see, A, the extent of the renovation we need to undertake, but also look down on the glass roof of our swimming pool. Why do you have a swimming pool? Well, the building and the institution were set up to look after people in the printing and associated trades, and also with the emphasis on boys and girls of the poorer classes. 
not only did we provide education and tuition and concerts and cultural events and relaxation, there was a slightly avant-garde philanthropic view which looked after body as well. So not only do we have a swimming pool, we also have a gymnasium. Um, the swimming pool has now been turned into the, well, the world-famous Bridewell Theatre, which is a highly successful fringe theatre, and the gymnasium is now our printing workshop. Um, there are quite a few flights of stairs down in the building, so we'll come to those later on. Uh, we're now on the top floor, you'll be pleased to know, um, and we're coming into the infamous room 19. <laughs> that, that sounds ominous. Well, it's a little bit room 101. It's a curious room because it used to be where they taught letter press printing. A lot of bad work was done to it in the 70s, and you can see that in the 70s and 80s, you can see how the 80s was given the the title, the decade style forgot, because it really is quite an appalling uh, bit of renovation they did. Are are you looking, when you say that, are you looking at these uh, foam uh, ceiling tiles? I am indeed, which are all damp-stained and horrible, and really I can't wait to get them ripped out. When I started here, it was quite obvious that there were leaks and had been leaks over many years. So the first priority was to stop water getting in at the top and at the bottom of the building. Um, So we've done that. So all our stock is now safe and sound. But I need to do something about the aesthetics of this room, which is quite appalling, really. Um, (laughs) Under these ghastly tiles, or above these glassy tiles, you can actually see where used to be the pitch roof. So it's actually a fascinating room. And if we turn to our left, you will see the ceiling in the next room which is room 14 well that's very appealing which is a sort of steel and wood gables yes what we can see in the non-1980s but that's a very strange experience i just had as we stepped from the carpeted area into the uh, parquet floored area and it felt like i went back in time by at least 100 years and suddenly we have uh, yes, we can see skylights there covered over at the moment, but um, rather than the suspended ceiling, we've got a bit more sense of space. And it's it's is, really beautiful. It is beautiful. And there, there is a coupler on the roof. Um, and if you look out into, if you go out into New Bridge Street and look back along Bride Lane, this building, you will see the beautiful Queen Anne style uh, windows in the roof. Uh, it really is a stunning building and it's been neglected um, not just physically but mentally and emotionally for many years because it's hidden in this tiny, this narrow maze of streets and in fact if we could just bring it to people's attention I'm sure it would uh, attract a lot of interest. Every year we do open house and last year we had over 500 people through on one day and we actually had to have people outside stopping the next groups coming in because words gets around and it's a brilliant building. And what is the deal in terms of accessing the place and must people pay or well the library has a a friends scheme so that's the friends of the library Um, we also have most of our rooms open to the public so they can hire them for meetings events and conferences Um, the theatre is open most nights and quite a lot of lunch times so through the doors we probably get 80,000 visitors a year Uh, for the library they come from Australia America New Zealand China they come from all over the world to study Um, and now we also have the print workshops so people are coming here to learn the traditional printing techniques and we've got all the original equipment I would like the building to be in operation 24 hours a day but that's 
over ambitious but maybe 18 hours a day seven days a week so the more people we can get in the more enthusiasm we can generate and also a greater understanding for everybody about what used to go on in this part of london its importance and its significance where would we be without the printed word i almost want to take that and unpack it as a philosophical inquiry but i think we <laughs> well we could go on about religion and politics and we could perhaps say that perhaps it's not always a good idea but it, the printed word and the invention of movable type is probably the greatest single invention or that's had most impact on most of us from the 13th 14th centuries where would you go with the uh, with the idea of internet and the, the availability of sort of some of the things that you'd associate with print to, in, in the home in the hand in the pocket that's a, a whole different discussion to be had and a very interesting one um just touching on the internet and the use of internet briefly um, we have many thousands of documents in our archives which most of which would be of interest to most people Um, because of the physical limitations of the building of staff and of money we can't actually show those to most people whenever they just turn up it would be fantastic if we could get some a a significant amount of funding to get some of these documents digitized and then they'd be available on our website so that people could actually see what went on in in fact uh, where we're standing now we're looking at a a plan chest which has got some of eric gill's original designs in so uh, in the bottom uh, drawer there is a design for the cunard typeface which cunard didn't actually buy but it became the jubilee typeface and i'll just open it for you there you are that is original eric gill you can see the name cunard there we're moving away from eric gill and we've come into an well. If I if I thought that was a trip back in time, uh, this we're heading even further back now. If you're into your retro interior design, then this is really the place for you. We have brown brick, we have glazed white and burgundy tiles, we've got a black pitched roof with scorch. With you can see the scorch marks from the incendiaries. Oh my goodness! Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's sometimes it's turned the. I, sometimes I swear you can smell the smoke in here, but that's also very frightening when you consider the amount of printed material we have. Quite right. It's turned the paint into a crocodile skin. It has. Yeah, it's quite amazing, and it, we can also see that this building has really suffered over the years because we've got the addition of much wiring for a variety of service, uh, services. Uh, um, telephone, electricity, etc., various alarms over the years, um, fire lights, and they've just been stuck on willy-nilly all around the building. And to get the building back into some state, uh, we need to remove all this cabling. But the room we're in now is actually part of what was the lecture theatre. And although it's not immediately obvious... No, it is. See, uh, it is, yes. I, I, you will see there are four big wooden steps on which you can have seats. Uh, so where did, where did the lecture... This isn't very good lectures, for radio, but where did, where did it continue through? This is through? hopeless for radio. This building is hopeless for radio. The lecture theatre continued along to this wall here. So this had a pitch roof here that was glass, and it looked along at 90 degrees, the length of the next room, which also had a glass ceiling, um, right along, and that's where they taught letterpress printing. So the whole area, but this was all lecture theatre-style seating, and that must have been taken out at some time to create additional storage spaces as the collections grew and grew and continue to grow. Well, this very much appeals to my aesthetic, and um, I'm going to poke my nose around a corner here and see what I... Oh, lots of little wooden uh, cabinets with, with 
metal pull handles. It's like being stuck in the station master's office from about 1920, 1930. It's also got a Dickensian charm. It really has the most fascinating collection, not just of the printed material, not just of items relating to printing, but just the whole building, the design of it, the style of it, the, the iron balustrades, the marble floors, um, the very unusual ceilings and roofs. It's just an incredible place. Uh, we're going to take a short pause and we'll be right back. London's Air Ambulance is the charity that delivers an advanced trauma team to critically injured people in London. Using a helicopter by day and rapid response cars by night, a doctor and a paramedic team can be at a patient's side within minutes. They provide life-saving medical interventions such as open-heart surgery, blood transfusions and anaesthesia at the roadside. Every second counts, as does every donation, big or small. Please visit londonsairambulance.co.uk slash donate. Thank you. I'm here with Glyn Farrow, Chief Executive of the St Bride Foundation. We're moving through the library now. Where are we headed? We're heading towards our collection of broadsides, which is a, a significant collection, and they're, they're very interesting stories. And broadsides or broadsheets? Broadsides. Ah. Broadsheets, big newspapers, broadsides, something different. Um, I'm just trying to find you a classic one. Um, there we are. These were uh, stories of the day that were published. The ones I'm going to show you were published by a man called Catnack. Um, and they were one page, which uh, he used stock blocks for, so you got the illustration. And then he'd write the text around it and publish them. And some people say they're the origin of the expression Penny Dreadful. Uh, he was a great specialist in stories of horror. Uh, there's one I'm looking at now, which is The Trials of Bridget Culkin and Elizabeth Ross for Birking. Uh, I should quickly explain that what we're looking at is, uh, it looks like a page from the I newspaper, except that it's one story, some sort of engraving depicting somebody in a full poster bed towards the top, and it says that the headline that you've just mentioned. And then there are three columns of type and what's the story here well the story is that Hare and burke were the grave robbers who used to provide the bodies for dissection probably at bart's just up the road um so burking was really bumping somebody off so that they could be dissected um not only did he this sort of story he did um, things about murders there's one story of a man who murdered a young man um but at the time he didn't know that the young man was his estranged son and Catnack reveled in this sort of story. He published his papers at Seven Dials up down in Covent Garden, um, and he actually went to prison for a short time for inventing stories, and he was prosecuted uh, for it. Um, I think one of the stories he went to prison for was that of selling human meat to butchers in Covent Garden. However, while he was in prison, his son carried on the family business in the same sort of uh, train. Um, and we also know that they were quite a delightful family because at another time Mrs Catnack was arrested for brawling in a pub. So you really wouldn't want to live next door to them. So this is like the National Enquirer or, or some, <laughs> some sort of scandal rag, but it's one story at a time. And how, how were they d distributed? What, what they were it? sold on street corners. Um, We've mentioned these uh, very sensational ones at the beginning, the triangular triplets on the death of Derry Down. 
crikey. There's another one here which is headed by a depiction of hanging bodies, hanged men. The Troubadours serenade a ballad. So that seems very different in tone. And then we move on to one or two others. This seems to be some sort of morality piece, The Vanity of Pride, it's entitled. And then we have The Valiant Tar as another one. So it seems as though these aren't uh, these aren't only... Uh, gossip and scandal there's uh, other, other sorts of publication going on no there were the music songs poems all the things that you've just said what i think is quite interesting is that when we're doing work with some young people who bring them into the foundation show them what they've got what we've got here they actually look at these and find out that there are no new issues the same problems of poverty uh, deprivation lack of education poor parenting drink and drugs they're exactly the same now as they were in the 1820s and 1830s when these were published so this is blogging isn't it blogging yeah i suppose it is blogging yeah i suppose it's old good old-fashioned blogging it's probably where blogging started um they are a fascinating piece of history um and we have a huge collection as you can see and it would be a wonderful job to sit down and take them and have a good look through them all and sort of write some of them up now in phd for somebody in common parlance a broadside is a fairly high temperature attack on someone or something so is that where we get this from are these are generally quite extreme in their opinions um not necessarily but i've never heard of that analogy before so that really interests me that's something for me to go and look up so i i, I really don't know about that one and i presume there's the the naval connection as well in the etymology isn't there a broadside i think was uh, where one boat sidled up to another and fired all its cannon uh, there's everything we need to know in the uh, staff amusing staff picture <laughs> pinned to the wall here yeah but that's probably not for public benefit um here we have a, a selection of printing blocks which we acquired i think in the 20s they've never been unwrapped so now it's a question of not only how do we conserve and look after the blocks that are wrapped up but actually the wrapping and the string themselves have become uh, items of interest um, we've also got um, a huge collection of Caslon punches, uh, which are the way that you made type. Uh, it's quite a complex process, and you'd harden the punch, then bang it into a softer metal, and then that would make your mould, and then you'd pour lead and antimony in to this mould, and that's how you created your piece of type. And we have a huge collection um, from various foundries, uh, a couple of thousand boxes here. And then if we move along to this side, you'll see there are some hand moulds, which are where they used to cast the individual characters. Is there not a health risk? I, I know we were handling the lead-based uh, pieces earlier on, but presumably in your line of work, you're, you're handling a lot of lead, aren't you? No, not very much, and it's all set anyway. We don't heat it up, so it's not going to be melting uh, and releasing anything too toxic and noxious for us of course printing was a dangerous industry uh, it did involve molten lead molten antimony um, and people did become ill there were horrific accidents and some of the presses and guillotines used very easy to lose a hand or lose a finger and one of the things that i worry about now is we do use some of the equipment here we have to be very careful about health safety insurance uh, never mind the legislation it'd just be so easy for somebody to become hurt so we have to be very very careful on the numbers of people we let into rooms when we're doing this sort of work and making sure that the people we have doing the demonstrations are properly trained and qualified 
That's very interesting what you're saying there, because that presumably means uh, an evolution. You might even see it as a devolution in the role of the printer across uh, a couple of hundred years until you get to the point where a lot of that function has been completely superseded by technology. But even moving away from something which was presumably required life or death levels of precision and care and took a little bit of bravado as well, I I would imagine, to uh, engage with the machinery, um, has been reduced somewhat as as time's gone on. Absolutely, and printing uh, was a way of life for some people. It was their whole lives. And in the 80s, when it all became digitised and moved away, that was the end of people's careers and their social lives and everything that they had, and they had to start again. Um, So you can't really overemphasise the importance of printing in this area since 1470, something like that. Um, It's a huge piece of history, and it's, it's great for us that we have this these items that we can preserve that history and show people Uh, and we're we're in fact the last bit of proper Fleet Street remaining Uh, there are no other papers around here downstairs we actually have what I believe to be the last newspaper press in Fleet Street when I think of well not only from personal knowledge the the printers that I've met but also you think of the print unions in more modern times or way back in the day I have to say I think of men. What about women's role in this organisation, in this trade? There were very few. They weren't allowed to be in printers. They weren't allowed to be compositors. Uh, women could become designers and typographers, um, but women were basically excluded from this industry. In the 1950s, one of our governors, Mrs Beatrice Ward, who was an American woman and had been the... Uh, marketing or information officer for the monotype corporation gave a a couple of talks on radio in australia uh, about just this and she was not only talking about good typography and design she was talking about the fact that women were not allowed to be in the industry in fact beatrice ward gives a very nice summary of the importance of good typography and if you want to go to our website which is www.sbf.org.uk you can actually click on a link and hear beatrice ward telling you why typography is important my favorite part about that is she says it's good manners so the way she's speaking is trying not to shout and that's exactly what the typographer should be doing setting something that matches the subject it's also very important when you think about terms of education uh, and think about young people they need to look at books that are going to engage with them not jar we're walking past uh, a damaged bust that looks like a very modern thing as well I have no idea where it came from. Who is he? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. He's, he's broken. He looks very um, somebody's obviously given him a coat of emulsion at some time over the years because there's very poor paintwork. And it also looks as though he's been given a, a, a scrub with a scrubbing brush. Uh, I hope he's not of great value. I'm sure he's not. He doesn't look as though he is. We have got another couple of busts of Samuel Richardson dotted around the place, and we've got some lovely old photographs of the foundation showing these busts in sort of niches on the walls and things. I don't think I want to know his real history, the real provenance of that. It might require a lot of insurance. through uh, some of the less well-appointed parts of the building. You can say that again. This is what we refer to as the community side of the building. In fact, you refer to it as the less well-appointed, but if you take a step back and look at that window, it's actually rather beautiful, and it's a, a classic example of arts and crafts. 
which intrigues me because I've always associated arts and crafts with sort of the beginning of the 20th century and this building was designed in 1891 so um, it's a curiosity um, we're actually standing by what used to be the shaft for a dumb waiter. Uh, and up until this weekend, it had a, a fire hydrant and dry riser system and wet riser system in it, which has probably had the same stale water in for 60 years. So obviously that had to go. Um, so that's all being sorted and renovated at the moment. And that's just another little, little project for us. Um, the building, given its size and age, is a, a constant drain of resources. It's like the fourth road bridge. We'll never finish. Um, but on the other hand, it's rather wonderful because you're constantly finding new things, things that you didn't know, and more about the building and what went on. We're actually crossing now into a slightly newer part of the building, uh, which is where the City Lit Institute started. And in fact, I should say that the St Bride Printing School eventually morphed into the London College of Communication when it moved to the South Bank many years ago. And if you'd like to look on their website, you'll see a piece where they acknowledge our our role in being set up. Mind the this is the old gymnasium. Oh, and this feels like an old gymnasium too. We are surrounded by some of the most beautiful, what look like cast iron printing machines that you're likely to see. And that's exactly what they are. We have one, two, three, four, probably ten presses of different sizes, shapes, ages in here. They've all got their interesting and uh, peculiar characteristics. Uh, There's one there which is a Stanhope, which is a massive cast iron thing. The interesting part about that is that once you've set your type and inked it up and run it under the platen and you pull the lever... As the lever goes down, the mechanism ensures that the platen goes down more slowly but with greater force. Um, The next uh, press is an Albion, which is absolutely constant, the force as you pull on the handle. Um, and the last one... Well, this, this is something to behold. It's got an eagle on the top of it. Well, a surprise, surprise, that's an American press. And it's a oh, Colum- really? It is indeed. It's a Colombian. Uh, and the beauty of the Colombian is that the big eagle, which you see, is actually a counterbalance. So that if we're teaching very young people about printing, they can actually pull the lever, um, and I can do it with my little finger, which you can't do with any of the other presses. Well, I'd have had this down as something that was printing out uh, war statements for Kaiser Bill. Well, it could well be. It could well, well have been. Um, they were all used for so many things. Where, where, did, where did you get them from? These were in the building um, many, many years ago. I don't quite know the, the provenance of them. I would imagine that we have another Albion Press and a Stanhope. When they set up the original printing school, they would have been acquired then. Um, but as for the Columbian, I really don't know. And that the Heidelberg at the end there looks a little bit more like a Norton bike in terms of its uh, engineering. The Heidelberg was an impulse purchase of mine. Somebody told me we could get one, and it was a very reasonable price, so we bought it. Um, it's the, the jobbing press, the jobbing press of all market town printers. Um, utterly reliable. We actually use this one now for printing our own library stationery and various other in-house stationery. It makes a wonderful noise. It's called a windmill press. It uh, works on a vacuum basis. It sucks up the paper. It drops it to be printed. Then it picks it up and puts it in a neat stack on the right-hand side. 
very very easy to lose a hand very very easy to lose fingers uh, and the could, only could, you, could you show me because we've said that several times how would you go about losing a hand here well the best thing would be for me to show you uh, some video of it i'm not going to switch this on no. because i'm not qualified but if we're looking at the machine now there's a central spindle on either side of those spindles are two arms which rotate uh, in about a, a probably four foot across hence the windmill and they would spin round and if you got your hand caught in that it was good by hand the only safety mechanism is really this sign here which says original heidelberg which will only work um, when it's in the down position Um, if you tip it up it turns the machine off but really there's still a huge space to get your hands your hair tie anything caught in it Quite dangerous, but an incredible piece of engineering. Wonderful noise, wonderful smell. Can you smell the ink from it? And very, very nice printing as well. Oh, beautiful, like. beautiful. And these were, were done here. So, um, fantastic machine. Very glad we bought it. Um, getting it installed wasn't so easy because it weighs an awful lot. And with this building, with no lifts and 16 staircases, it wasn't that easy. But it's a job well done. And is it the case that the technicians that are associated uh, with the foundation would be able to pick up one of these machines and understand how it works? Absolutely. We actually teach using nearly all these machines. We don't teach with the Heidelberg. We only use that for either demonstrations or for printing things that we need. But the other presses are all used on an almost daily basis. We've got the printing cases that I mentioned, the upper and lower case uh, in, in front of us, and we have got many cases of type. Um, and you can see that there are two different types of cases. The ones over there, which have the standard upper and lower case, and then this one before me is a called Californian case. And the upper case uh, letters are sort of to one side of the case and the lower case are, are, um, to the other side. So it's all on one level. Um, I'm now picking up a composing stick, which is how you set the individual letters And just over in front of me, you will see a a huge piece of type that has been set. It's four pages. And if you'd like to go and look at it, you will see exactly how complicated it was. Now, let me get this clear in my mind, because I think what you've just described when you talked about the, uh, the, the, the standard system and the Californian system is that the people working with the type are going to have to be moving incredibly quickly and it's going to be uh, sort of automatic manual work that they're doing you'd have to not be thinking too much about it it would have to be at that sort of level so presumably if you've got two different systems that requires two very different uh, sets of habits I think you could probably switch from one to the other, but you couldn't switch back again. It was an incredibly skilled job, incredibly skilled job, time-consuming, under great pressure. Um, The the piece that's set in front of me, you can see four pages, um, that would have taken a long, long time to set. Think of that as a newspaper and think that that was being done every day and all day. This is an example um, that would be the com- compositor the comp would set it and the sub-editor would come along and have a look at it they'd take a proof of it on a press such as that Albion press there so it would be inked up, paper put on top and then a proof tape well, you'd have to do the proof because otherwise it's back to front so, exactly, so th- th- then look at it, check the text make sure everything's right once that was right, the, a, a mould was taken of this um, and produced a thing called a flong and we've got a flong here uh, a flong looks a bit like a a, a newspaper-sized sheet of sponge. Um, it was produced by injecting the flong material over the, the type at high pressure. And then that flong 
was used to create the stereo, which is like a large drum of lead and antimony. So you've got all the type that was set by hand then on one drum. And that's what was used to make your daily paper. The paper would run between two of the drums. Each day, that drum would be melted and used the next day. So we've got one here, which is the 23rd of August, 1986, uh, which is quite interesting, the Financial Times. We have another one from the Cambridge Evening News. For um, It's got a piece about Nana Muscori in it. Um, and we actually have the stereos there. And if you'd like to pick that one up, you will see how much it weighs. That's half one of the drums. OK, so this, uh, well, as you describe, it is a uh, half a cylinder with the print on it. So very, I've never seen an object like this before. And gosh, yes, it is extremely heavy. And quite, that's quite a unique object. It's very attractive in its own right. It is. They're amazing things. They are absolutely incredible. And it, it's just testament to the people who created these things every day. And you cannot deny the fact that they were incredibly skilled. Uh, Fleet Street's got a reputation for being hard drinking, uh, hard living and having a good time as well as working hard, but they certainly did work hard. And it's no wonder that people in the industry mourn the passing of this. It is quite an incredible process, and it's one you just don't see anywhere anymore. We've got about ten minutes left on the show. What are we going to do with our ten minutes? Well, we're going to go, I think, to the fun part of the building. Not that the rest of it isn't fun. We're going to go down to the theatre... Um, which is now over the old swimming pool and um, I'm not fit enough to get in the pool but you are so you can go in the pool that's very generous Um, so we'll show you now down there well we've come in what used to be the main entrance to St Bride Foundation and we we appear to have arrived in some toilets this can't be right so this is where the individual baths were so if you lived in Bell's buildings in 1895 you probably lived in a rather grotty bedsit You'd have been working in a dirty industry, ink, filth, grime, etc. Everything would have been warmed by coal fires. Uh, There's all the railways, and it was a pretty polluted and grotty area. You wouldn't have had a bathroom. So you'd have come here and you'd have had a bath. And where we're standing now is where the two first-class baths used to be. And we're going to go down this flight of stairs into where the second-class baths used to be. And we don't actually know what the difference between the first and the second-class was, but you can probably work it out for yourself, or think you can. Um, We have this nice theory that the hot water went from the first class down to the second class. But whether that's true or not, I don't know. Well, you've got showers in there at the moment. It doesn't look as though there'd be room for a bath, though. Well, there were two in the whole of this area, so all these walls would have gone. The the toilets probably wouldn't have been there, and just the two baths. And then down here, we'd have the six uh, second-class baths. Currently a theatrical dressing room by the looks of it. This is now the dressing room for the Bridewell Theatre, which is rather wild and wacky with its lime green and uh, sort of orange paintwork. Um, so let's say this is where the second class baths would be. There's a trap door in the floor which goes to the coffin room. Uh, and the coffin room is where the students used to keep a coffin for use in Rag Week, which is why it's called that. But we've got various other strange rooms with different names. So we're going to go now into the actual pool area, which has got the theatre on it. I think we must be backstage. 
No, we're not. We're coming we were in the side of the then. wings. Yes. Yeah. The, the theatre in this configuration seats 134 people, um, but we can change it and we can put it in what I would call portrait or landscape configurations or have uh, seats on either sides. And the stage area is huge. The stage area is absolutely huge, and we do very often two productions a day. So we'll have something different at lunchtime, which is what we call lunchbox theatre. Uh, it's from one o'clock to quarter to two. You have to be in sharp, but you can bring your lunch and a drink in with you. And we do things from Shakespeare through to comedy, cabaret, all sorts of things. Oh, that sounds like the sort of thing I'd like to see. How, how can you find details of that? You just look on the website, www.sbf.org.uk. Um, we're just implementing a new programme, so it should be some exciting stuff coming on for the rest of the year. And then in the evenings, we have we let the theatre to um, various different companies. Uh, this production is by CDOS, which is the Stock Exchange Dramatic and Operatic Society, who are our resident theatre company. Um, and you can see it's quite a spectacular set. We've got chandeliers, posters, Victorian fireplaces, flock wallpaper, all sorts of things. Um, and in fact, if we walk round to the back, you'll see the size of the stage. You can actually open these blinds so you see all daylight, which is quite... Really? Right. Huh. Can we do it? Oh, yes, really. Is it that easy? Yeah, yeah. Oh, OK, this is a new one on me. OK, so we can open the roof of the theatre. This is my Thunderbird moment. I absolutely love this. Yes, literally, we're on a swimming pool which opens. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a, a swimming pool which is a theatre. And there you are. There's the roof opening. Several different slats are moving to one side to reveal skylights. And it's converting with amazing rapidity from a blacked-out theatre in the usual style to something a little bit more approaching the Conservatory of Chiswick House, where we were a couple of weeks ago. Uh Oh, I live in Chiswick, so I know it well. Um, so just to add another dimension to this crazy space, which we also sometimes take all the seats out and use it for other reasons. We have actually had a ball in here. Um, we've had a 28-piece swing band. Uh, we've had all sorts of lessons. Now, if you want to lift that handle up... I don't know, well, no, there's a handle in the floor here. we find some steps and that takes you down to the swimming pool which is completely intact and in very good condition i'm just going to poke my nose down there go backwards and do mind your head the lights should be on are they on okay i'm in i'm into a crawl space what can we see here well i'm under the floorboards the uh the ceiling height is maybe four foot you're in the shallow end. So I'm, I'm in the swimming pool at the moment? Swimming pool at the shallow end. If you go down to the other end, it's over six foot deep. Oh, yes, I see. And it's all white glazed tiles, similar to the ones we saw upstairs. What an amazing space. And it looks very much like the escape shaft in The Great Escape, propped up with the wooden uh, slats and props. Well, there we go. I'm going to crawl back up now. Mind you back. And uh, into, naturally enough, a uh, an Edwardian setting room, which is <laughs> what the, the play must centre on. Um, we're going to have to uh, draw things reluctantly to a close here or hereabouts, Glenn. I know there's one more thing that you wanted to show before we draw to a, a stop. Through a, a door that uh, creaks to prove its own authenticity... 
and from a nondescript passage into a very atmospheric New England feeling bar, I would say. Well, I think it's more old England because um, it's where the laundry used to be. In 1894, you wouldn't have had a swimming costume, probably. So you'd have had to rent one, uh, a higher one, and this is where it would have been laundered. So there is the original washing machine. <laughs> Look at this. Oh, this shouldn't be allowed. This is uh, <laughs> this is a, a wooden barrel, but it's very angular. I mean, it's a really badly made barrel, if that's what you were aiming for. It's got a, a couple of big wheels, one each end. This is very rudimentary. Uh, there's the spin dryer. Imagine a wine press. Yeah, imagine a large wine press. And you see both the spin dryer and the washing machine have got great belts because there's a huge steam engine in here, which is where that hole in the floor came so from. So steam-powered? It was, yeah. And then this drying rack here was one of a bank of about eight, which slid out on these rails over the hot water pipe. You, you're saying a drying rack. I'm seeing empty space. Uh-huh. Well, this is one of the drying racks, and these used to slide out. We just left this one here so that you can see how it used to work. And if I lift this metal panel up, you will see the old hot water pipes. There you are. Good grief. And apparently that system was invented by Angela Burdett Coutts and Charles Dickens for Florence Nightingale to use in the Crimea. Listen to the clang of those names as they fall. And there's just one last thing. If you look down through there, there is all the old pumping equipment from the pool. So it's all still here. Um, and that's really St Bride Foundation. Well, I'm, uh, I'm slightly overwhelmed by the sheer variety of stuff that's here. Worth a visit, no question about that. And of course, whilst we've done our best with the verbal descriptions of these things, there's nothing beats really having a look at them for yourself and touching them and smelling them, and particularly on the, the print side of things, really appreciating the complexity and the work that would have had to go into producing something that I think perhaps we, we now take for granted, for maybe with good reason in the present day, but uh, uh, the, the history of print is a fascinating thing and uh, Glyn Farrow thank you very much for sharing it with us thank you very much and that's all for this week my thanks for this week to Glyn Farrow thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea I'm in Quentin Wolf. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.